This is the current federal tax developments for the week of July the 17th, 2023. Current federal tax developments are brought to you by Kaplan Financial Education and by your state Society of CPAs. It's Ollers, and we're going to talk this week about a lot of things that have been going on in the area of federal taxes. Had a few things happen during the week, one of which was pretty big. We want to go over that as our main issue this week, and that will be looking at the IRS's extension on Friday of SECURE Act Inherited IRA Required Distribution Relief for one additional year and an additional special rollover rule that affects those born in 1951 due to changes made in the SECURE 2.0 Act late in the year. We'll talk about the IRS's grant of filing and payment relief to certain victims of flooding in Vermont, as well as discuss the odd case that also came up at the end of the week of 11 separate requests that appear virtually identical for the IRS grant of relief to make a late election to opt out of bonus depreciation. We'll talk about why that was done, why, how it was so easy to foul this up and create this situation, and also the situations under which you would ask for this relief. In essence, you know, assuming that it's not something we see requested a lot, it's not an election that we tend to make an awful lot unless you're in certain states. And then you may see it quite a bit more often, especially in the partnership context and these requests for partnerships in general. So we'll talk about how that ended up. But let's start with the big thing of the week, and this was IRS Notice 2023-54. The notice was issued on July the 14th. You may remember that in the 2019 SECURE Act, that bill passed in December of 2019, that I like to remind people we quickly forgot about because COVID hit and we had so many COVID-related bills in 2020 that everybody kind of vaguely recalled we did something with retirement plans at the end of 19, but that kind of went off everybody's radar. That was one of those things you said, well, we're going to take a look at that when tax season ends and then all kinds of things happen, including tax season effectively never ending that year. Remember, it was a year you probably don't want to remember too much about, but we did have it there. So in this case, that act provided for changes for distributions made from inherited IRAs, the required minimum distribution rules. Prior to the SECURE Act changes, there were essentially two big rules that you had in play. If somebody died and their IRA or defined contribution retirement plan was not yet in what's referred to as pay status. That is, the individual had not met their required beginning date yet, which was April 1st of the year following the year in which they turned 70 and a half, and therefore was receiving RMDs, required distributions, then somebody who inherited the IRA had normally two choices for retirement plan as long as the plan or IRA provided for both options. First, they could make the election to only decide to agree to have everything out by the end of the fifth year following the year the person passed away, but not really care if you took anything in the first four years. We just knew that on December 31st of year five, after someone passed away, you had to have the entire balance out of the account. The second option was a life expectancy option. 
in that option, you had to take a distribution every year. And you made the election under what we might call a Nike clause. That is, just do it, their old slogan that Nike had. You had to take a distribution by the end of the first year that was equal to the amount of what would have been computed by taking your life expectancy based upon the IRS tables as of that year after the year in which the person turned, the year in which the person died, not turned 70 and a half in this case, but when they died, and then using that as a life expectancy, divide that into the balance as of the beginning of the year, and then every year reduce that divisor by one. And as long as you took that initial distribution, you effectively could make the election to do it you know, every time. And the advantage of that was you could stretch out your IRA for quite a while. Let's say that you were 19 years old and you inherited an IRA from your grandfather and that meant that you really had quite a small, quite a big divisor, which is good news because it means a small distribution and could stretch your distribution out for many, many decades if you really wanted to maximize the tax deferral in the IRA. If you basically inherited that, to the price that you inherited from your father, you were 19. If you inherited it from your grandfather, and let's say who was already in the pay mode, so they were past the required beginning date, then you basically did have to take it out if you were the only beneficiary, so you're the eligible, you're the designated beneficiary, not eligible, that comes later, then you were, you were basically required to take it out over your life expectancy. But that, again, could be many, many decades. What changed in the SECURE Act was that we said, okay, Regardless of whether the person is in pay status or not, unless you're in a very small group called eligible designated beneficiaries, and that's a very small group of people that can include a minor child, but only until they reach age of majority, that could include your spouse. It could include your, you know, a disabled beneficiary, could include a chronically ill beneficiary or it could include a beneficiary that was less than 10 years younger than the deceased. If you weren't in one of those categories or you were in one of those that didn't elect to use the special rule for taking it over your life expectancy, then you had to go ahead and have the entire balance out in 10 years. Now that was good news compared to the five years, right? Because it is twice as long but it meant that you couldn't get that multiple decade that we could get before if that 19-year-old inherited the IRA. So that was a key change made in the SECURE Act. Right? So basically, we're looking at any inherited IRA regardless of why, you know, regardless of how it was, whether it was in pay status or not, had to be fully distributed by the 10th year following the year the holder passed away. Entire balance had to come out by then. What happened though was this bill's passing the end of 19, the IRS gets somewhat distracted by this whole COVID bit in 2020. And no regulations got issued to explain how this would work. And they also, because we kept having COVID bills running all the way through 21, we didn't get any regulations issued to explain this all the way through 2021. Many people who read the bill assumed that what the IRS was doing, or what Congress was doing, was taking the 10-year number and just substituting that for five. Okay, that much is pretty clear. 
but also substituting what we might have called before the five-year rule, now the 10-year rule, and substituting that for the life expectancy option in full, regardless of whether somebody was or wasn't in pay status. So to put it more simply, they believed that regardless of whether the account was already in pay status or not, once somebody died, you had 10 years, right, to take the funds out, but you didn't need to take any distribution in years one through nine. You could avoid that. There was no requirement to take life expectancy distributions, which under the 2019 rules, you would have had to have taken had the account been in uh, pay status before it got to you. So generally, the person dies in the year they die if they have not taken the required distribution. You've got to take the remaining part of that. And everybody agreed that rule didn't change. But then the year following the year the person died, that was when a lot of people thought, well, the real rule now is you can totally ignore that year. You just, you could wait to year 10 if you want to. In February of, you know, so basically if you inherited an IRA account from your 76 year old father, you could keep all the funds in the account until the end of the 10th year. That was the belief based on what a lot of people thought. However, in February of 2022, that is after the end of 21, the IRS issued proposed regulations on this SECURE Act. So even though the act passed at the end of 19, we finally got regulations describing how this special rule worked in February of 22. And what that provided was if an account was in pay status, the old rule requiring the beneficiary to take a life expectancy payment was still in effect for the first nine years. You didn't avoid that distribution in year one to nine. Rather, what happened was you had to still go back and start taking that distribution just as you would have under the old standard stretch IRA. You have to take that distribution just as an eligible designated beneficiary would. But then when you got to the 10th year, you had to take all balance out then. So both eligible designated beneficiaries and designated beneficiaries would both have the same required minimum distribution for the first nine years. And in year 10, those that weren't eligible designated beneficiaries, the ones that could keep using the old rules, they had to swap over and take all the funds out that year. Those that were eligible designated beneficiaries would just continue down the line. The regs also provided that if that eligible designated beneficiary died and the account went to another person, that that, uh, that next person in line could never be treated as an eligible designated beneficiary. The 10-year rule would be triggered then only somebody who inherits it from the owner could make use of the eligible designated beneficiary rules. And a big thing to note about this was that this required payment would have been applied in 2021 for anybody that died in 2020 and their IRA went to somebody else. And as you may remember, the US, US death rate was up a bit in 2020. We were at the beginning of the COVID uh, pandemic and definitely death rates were higher. And because of that, there were a lot of IRA accounts where the money got taken out. You know, in essence, the transfer took place in 2020 and 21 would have been the first required payment. And that payment had been missed. Now, as you might guess, this caused a bit of a panic. 
because A, a lot of people realized immediately the 21 payment should have been taken. If the payment's not taken, the penalty for not timely taking the penalty is equal to 50% of the amount you should have taken. Now, we all know the IRS rarely enforce that, and you just ask for relief, and the IRS would say, okay, fine, that's great. But normally, you know, they would allow it. But normally they'd allow it if you'd taken steps to fix it by taking the distribution you should have taken in, let's say, 21 in 22. So I heard a lot of rumors, and some of them were just weird. That, in fact, one was really interesting because this proposed raid came out late in February. And I got one rumor given to me, like, where'd that one come from? That said, oh, you'd be totally fine, but you had to take the money out by the end of February, which was like less than a week to pull the trigger. Uh, I said, no, nothing, nothing anywhere tells me that. I think somebody suggested that just reading it and saying, well, you know, you know, you want to take it as soon as possible, so take it now. And somehow that got created from a, well, that, that would probably work without question, to, oh, well, that's the rule. No. Had the IRS had any such rule like that, they would have at least given a couple of months, probably to the middle of the year or later, because they realize, as we'll talk about shortly here with additional issue on the relief, that it takes a while for this word about these things to get out and for it to get implemented and people to hear about it through updates, through newsletters, through other things. So yeah, yeah people wouldn't have known about it in a week. And the other catch was they thought, well, you know, we all seem to get the 22 payments together. My own advice to clients when this came out was, no, wait, the IRS clearly has fouled up big by bringing this out in February of 22. They will have to grant some sort of relief for 21. I would hold tight for a while and see what the IRS tells us to do because they got to say something about 21. You know, this is their foul up. They need to own it. So they're going to be doing something. And secondly, you know, don't jump on 22 right away. These are proposed regs, not final. And while we can, while they tell us we could rely on those regs, again, they're only proposed at this point. So I would say, you know, hold off for a second. Let's see what they're going to do. We, you know, we, they have to say something for the end of the year, which it turns out they did. Uh, in response to a whole bunch of comments complaining about just what I mentioned, the IRS issued relief tw- release, no, release notice, I'll get that right, 2022-53. This came out in the fall of 22. And what it said, it would waive penalties for failing to take these life expectancy distributions from your inherited IRA accounts for 21 and 22. It would also not challenge the qualification status of requirement plans that had failed to make these distributions because an employer-sponsored plan, supposedly, if they were holding funds like this, should have made the distribution. Remember, for employer-sponsored plans, we're not allowed to take it from whichever plan we'd like. Every plan on its own has to meet this rule. So it's a plan qualification issue as well. Said, okay, we're gonna waive that. And then they made a statement that I've heard misinterpreted a lot of times. They stated, this is word for word. The regulations would apply no earlier than 2023. They did not say the regulations would apply in 23. But I read a lot of articles, commentaries, uh, heard people you know, make statements on various broadcasts 
that said, oh yeah, you don't need to take distribution for 22, but that distribution will be required in 23. And it was a problem because as I noted, that's not what it said. It said that you might need to take them in 23. And that is what I told my clients. If you, you know, if after running all the numbers, you know, cause you've got a choice anywhere, let's say, if these aren't required, you have a choice anywhere within the 10 years, let's assume that's your possibility. If under that scenario, you know, you decided not to take it in 21, you prefer not to take it in 22, so you don't, you're allowed to do that. If you're still in a position at 23, we don't want to take it, or maybe 23 is the one year you don't want to take it because your income be unnaturally high that year, so it's better to move it into the next year, or maybe you've decided that the present value of the tax paid is such what you expect to pay versus what you expect to uh, benefit you expect to get from delaying payment means that delay is a better option on a present value basis. Uh, if you want to delay it, then hold tight. I will tell you before the end of the year if we need to do it. And I say, look, we're waiting on the IRS here in 23. And I would say if we don't hear from them, by December 15th, we will definitely start taking the payment. We'll assume that, yeah, they're, they're going to want it or, you know, we're at least taking a risk if we don't take the payment. But otherwise, wait to hear from me. Now, unlike last year, this year, they brought the notice out in July, right? So we now have a notice here in notice 2023-54 issued on July the 14th. That's going to just take that penalty and plan qualification relief for 21-22 when the distribution was not made. It's going to apply those same rules to 23. So again, you don't need to take a distribution in 23. You inherited your IRA from dad. He died in 2020. You now have been able to skip three years. Now, nothing says the 10-year date's moving. So all it means is years one, two, and three could be nothing. And if they did decide to enforce the proposed regs, then we would just have our distributions going back almost certainly to computing them based on your age back when it should have come, you know, when it did the first year came to you in 2021. And we would just then pick up and make the last few distributions for years three through nine or three years, four through nine, actually at this point, we'd make those distributions beginning next year, assuming they decided to go forward with proposed regs. That would be the key. But again, they state that those proposed regs will take effect now no earlier than 24. It is the identical language we had a year ago. That means we do not know what's going to happen in 2024. And that's important for you to remember. Do not tell your client they have to take it in 24. What you want to tell them is they might have to take it, um, be ready to be required to take it. But if the IRS decides, not to push it now they, they decide that they're going to push this back another year which they could if they make that decision we may be able to skip again and again if we want to skip in 24 then we skip in 24 you know if that if they allow us to do it but i would say you're going to be waiting for the equivalent of this notice to show up next year or for the irs to simply take the regs final now, the catch is I expect they may have to send the regs out in proposed form yet again, because not in this particular area, but in others, the SECURE Act 2.0 made some changes. 
you know, required beginning dates change. So there definitely are some changes that need to be made to the proposed regs. So it's very possible they will re-expose them. You know, well, that's actually what GAT, what they call it under FASB. But rather, they would put them back out as proposed form, and we'd again be waiting. So, you know, we may still be on a delayed function. We don't know what they're going to do. So again, no requirement to make a distribution in 23, but there's also possibility to be no requirement in 24. And also, they added relief for those that have inherited an IRA from somebody who inherited an IRA from a decedent who passed away in 2020 or later. And that's important because now we have enough years, this is starting to happen. Remember, under the proposed regs, when somebody dies and then, you know, so somebody inherits their IRA, if they die before the 10 years are up, then we go to a new beneficiary, right? And that beneficiary is going to, again, come under a 10-year statute. They would be automatically, per the proposed regs, having inherited from somebody who was already in pay mode. So they would have to take a distribution. Well, the IRS says, I understand that. So we're going to waive those two for this year. So same issue. Uh, if you took a, if you had inherited from a beneficiary that inherited from somebody who died after 20, after the end of 2019, and that person has died in the interim, and you're now the second level inheritance, uh, you also granted this exception. They hadn't dealt with that in the prior version. Now, they also granted a new additional relief, and this is for a quirk because they changed the required beginning date uh, late in the year, and this time, because we didn't have COVID to basically get rid of the issue. You know, remember, we didn't have any required distributions in 2020, so this potential issue became a non-issue in 20. People who turned, who were born in 1951, they would turn 72 this year. Remember, IRA account custodians and plan, and plan custodians, you know, plan administrators, are required to notify people that are approaching their required beginning date that required minimum distributions are, are going to be coming and they're required to do them. Now, an IRA custodian doesn't have to actually make those distributions because, again, the holder of the IRA may have other accounts. And if they have other accounts, then, you know, they're able to take the total from whatever accounts they want to take it from. But they have to notify them. Now, because this came late in the year, a lot of the financial institutions complained it was too late in the year. And because it was so late in the year, they would never be able to get this the notice out that these people were not going to be required to take it. They were already set up to mail out notices for people that had RMD numbers. They couldn't modify those to pull out the 1951 people. Um, so because of that, they have a special rule here in because what may have happened was remember if you had it if you turned 72 in 2023 you might you know you could schedule your rmd and how it has to be taken by the april 1st of 24. if you do that you're going to double up so a lot of people start taking 23 and some people like taking monthly payments you might like take it just all of it early in the year whatever they may have taken payments that were meant that qualified as required minimum distributions. Once you're in pay status, 
you know, every payment you take from the IRA account until you get up to that required distribution amount, that distribution is considered to be your RMD not eligible for rollover. But now the problem was those, because we've moved the age up from 72 to 73, the reality is that no, you know, the people that reached 73 in 2023 reached 72 last year and they are ineligible. You could not reach 72 by the end of 22. So the reality is nobody's going to have this as their first year or April 1st of next year as a required beginning date. That simply is not going to work. So what do we do about these people? You know, they've taken money out of the account and now it turns out they should have been told these were rollover distributions. And if they're from a qualified plan uh, and they were given a check, which they would have been, they should have been told, you know, they should have had withholding on it, mandatory withholding. So how are we going to handle this? First thing is they, they say, okay, full relief for the plans that didn't, you know, and the IRAs that gave notices that didn't, you know, didn't give notice about this is a rollover distribution, not a minimum distribution. Uh, they're going to go ahead and say, hey, it's fine. Don't worry about that. That's not going to cause a qualification issue for your plan this year. When we get back to, you know, next year, when these people would turn 73, you'll send them a notice again for next year. As long as you do that properly next year, we don't have a problem. Okay. Um, you know, so it will make all that work. But for those who took payments, we're going to give relief. If they have taken any payment that those people born in 1951 take, that they take before July 31st of this year, that under the old Secure Act rules would have been RMD payments. You know, if they take more than the RMD amount, the excess won't qualify for the special rule. But up to the RMD amounts that they have taken prior to July 31st, the end of this month, they're going to be allowed to roll those back into their retirement accounts by September 30 of this year. Now, again, if they take a payment in August, so if they're taking monthly, you need to get these stopped in the next two weeks. But if not, you know, then, then we'll take a look at, you know, you know if they're, took it, they just took the straight, a single number, they were taking it quarterly, whatever, just get them stopped, or we don't need to worry about it because it was one single big annual payment. But any payment they took before July 31st, you can put it back in by September 30. And this will work even if they have taken money from the IRA account, got the check, and then put it back in an IRA account within 60 days. And they did that in the prior 12 months. Remember, we usually have a one rollover per year rule. And they're saying, well, if that would disqualify them for this purpose, we're ignoring that. However, there's a flip side here to be careful of. While they're ignoring any rollovers before the September 30 fix, any, once you make your rollover that's meant to cover the September 30, you know, fix any distributions before that date, you know, you're putting those back in. 12 months from that date, you've got to stay out of IRA, you know, rollover distributions. You need to be 12 months out from, your roll, from that rollover. So while we're going to say it's fine if you had some before, it's not fine afterwards. So if your client's thinking, oh, I'll roll it and then I'll take it back out and quote unquote borrow from my IRA, you know, because I really want to use that money and so I won't really have the money to put back in until, you know, 60 days later. So we're going to be putting it back in sometime in November. Uh, they're saying, no, that, that's not going to work. 
You, you can't, you, if you want to put it back in, put it back in right now uh, and leave it there. And then you got to wait 12 months. So that's the rule for this particular game. Next up, we're going to talk about the IRS's relief granted to those impacted by the major flooding that's taken place in the state of Vermont. This is entitled IRS Vermont Flooding Victims Now Eligible for Tax Relief, October 16th deadline, other dates extended to November 15th. This is IRS News Release IR 2023-125. This was issued on the 13th of July. Now, this provides relief for all 14 counties in Vermont that were impacted by the floods. You know, you know, understand Vermont's not that big geographically. So obviously this storm was big. All 14 counties were impacted by this, by the floods. And they've been issued, have been declared disaster areas, etc. All of that's covered. This particular relief will cover any deadline a taxpayer had that ran from July 9th, 2023 to November 15th. These are deadlines for filing, or paying the tax on a tax return in that realm. So for most things, for income taxes, it's going to basically cover those rules. And that would include estimates and things like that. So it's going to kick things back to November 15th. Um, and what it says effectively is, as long as you do it by November 15th, we're going to treat it like you did it by the due date that fell between the July and November 15th date. So for instance, for a payment of, you know, extension on a 1040, we're going to treat that as an October 15 filing date, as long as you file it by November 15th. That'll be how we'll fix it. Now, returns impacted by the November 15th extension include uh, 1040s that are on extension. So any 1040 on extension to October 15th is covered by this. The estimate payments that are due on September 15th, they'll now be due on November 15th. Uh, payroll and excise tax returns that are due on July 31st and October 31st. Uh, the, the slides on the screen will say October 15th should be the 31st. On July 31st, in essence, those will be covered by this. Again, that means they can be filed on November 15th. And the county or 1120, 1120S, and 1065 returns on extension. They will also be kicked forward. Obviously, this is a partial list. If you have fiscal year taxpayers, you may have other things that are five due dates that fall within that range that would be protected under this rule. There's also relief for payroll and excise tax deposits. Now, again, if you had to pay with a 941, let's say that, that you are a monthly payer, then that's not a deposit rule per se, that's paid with the return. And that payment would apparently be fine paid by November 15th. But if you're a three-day you know, three-day depositor, bi-monthly depositor, then the deposit rules you don't get to November 15th. This, this rules are more limited. You have to have a deposit that would have been due between July 9th and July 25th. As long as you have a deposit in those dates, whether it's payroll or it's excise taxes, and you actually make the deposit by July 25th, your deposit will be deemed to be timely under these rules. Now, the IRS said they'll identify affected taxpayers by their address, which means if it's in Vermont, they should catch it. Though they do, I love how they do things like this. They do give information about how you should protest this and how to uh, get the penalties reversed if they actually do assert penalties that are covered by this. They don't catch it. 
So pay attention to that and take a look at that if you have clients in Vermont. Also remember that if somebody does not live in Vermont, it's not one of the 14 counties, but let's say they working with an accounting firm that's in Vermont, and that means their records are now in Vermont, necessary, some or all the records necessary to prepare the returns were in Vermont, they can get relief as well, but uh, they will probably need to write the IRS when a penalty notice comes and explain why they are covered by this relief. So that's the way this one work. Pretty standard notice, pretty standard level of relief that we've had granted before. Uh, just be aware that now we do have that for Vermont as well. Whenever we have one of these major disasters, as always, keep your eye open for the IRS announcement of relief. The final thing this week is a PLR, and it's actually 11 of them, but we'll use PLR 2023-28007, issued on July the 14th as our example, because the other 10 are basically the same. There's very, very little difference in these private letter rulings that we got. So this is one of 11 virtually identical rulings issued this week, which generally tells you that these are probably all coming from the same either like related party group uh, or they're coming, and I think it's true in this case, from the same accounting firm that they made this mistake on a bunch of returns. My guess is, they may not have understood they were required to do this, and that's what, that was a big problem, right? Under Internal Revenue Code Section 168K7, if you want to, you can opt out on a class-by-class -class basis from claiming bonus depreciation. Now, it's only for assets acquired during the year in that class. And if you want to do more than one class, you have to list each one of them as, and again, and you can't pick and choose. You can't say, well, this five-year asset I want bonus on, but this one I don't. If you want to do things like that, you're probably going to have to use Section 179, assuming you can qualify, because you could select things for 179 and then let the rest be covered by this election. In any event, these taxpayers were going to opt out. Under Regulation 1.168K-2F1IIIB, right, that provides the method you're to use to make this election. How do we gonna make the election on the return? And that's gonna be the key issue we're gonna run into today. How do we do it? Now, the regulation is very simple. It says you must do what you're told to do in the instructions to form 4562 for the year in question. Now, currently, form 4562 instructions to state, look, if you're gonna do this, uh, obviously compute the depreciation without bonus, but then attach a statement to the return as well that states the classes of properties for which you're going to make this election. You know, if it's just seven years, say it's for seven-year property. If it was going to be for three-year and seven-year, you'd say three-year and seven-year property placed in service this year, right? And then you also make a statement that we're electing this under 168K7 and because... and we're not going to claim any special depreciation allowance for assets in those two classes that were placed in service in the current tax year. That statement must be attached to the return and it must be made on a timely return, including extensions. If you fail to do this properly, the law requires you to use bonus. Now you might wonder, why would I ever not want to use bonus depreciation? 
a very possible reason for partnerships as we see this happen. It'll happen in Arizona. If the partners in the partnership, in a real estate partnership, this will often be true because it's going to be rental income. Uh, if, if they are getting a pass-through loss, it will be a passive loss. However, the state may have a rather odd, well, I mean, I can explain why it's done this way for simplicity, but it can cause you problems, use bonus that may say, well, you know, we're not going to recognize bonus depreciation. So under our rules, you're going to add back your share of depreciation claimed on the return. And then you're going to turn around and instead now subtract out the depreciation recalculated under our method. Now, if the state itself doesn't do a separate passive activity computation, you're going to end up with no effective deduction on the federal return, but you're going to end up with positive income on the state because that add back is going to go into there on the state return. And that's going to turn out to be a problem, right? That add back will probably make you have you at least some positive income for the year, which is a problem, you know, where you're going to have quite a bit probably because it'll be the whole adjustment. You know, you had zero on the federal, but now let's say for Arizona state, which I know this happens in, you know, you would add back the entire depreciation on this asset for the year if you claim bonus, and then you subtract back out the depreciation on the asset as if bonus had not been claimed. And for Arizona, for individuals, that's no longer the rule, but it still remains the rule. Uh, for corporations, right? in this state, Arizona still has that as a corporate rule. So again, that could be a potentially big problem depending upon how it's structured. So you need to be aware of that, okay? In this case, the business plan to opt out for certain classes of assets. Not gonna say what the benefit was, but they assumed there was a net tax benefit in doing so. That's usually the reason why you do it. Um, you know, and they actually did properly compute the depreciation, not using bonus depreciation on their acquisition in the various classes they wanted to opt out of during the year. So proper computation, they claimed the deduction on the partnership return as if they had made this election properly. But the tax firm, and actually the PLRs make it clear it is the tax firm that did this. The tax firm failed to prepare and attach the required statements to each of these returns. The taxpayers never noticed, which probably isn't surprising. I doubt they'd realize there should be this piece of paper there. And so all these returns got filed and they were filed and there was no election attached. And not only did we go past, you know, the due date, but we probably also went past the extended due date. Uh, there, is some, there are some special rules that allow us to make a late election where the IRS sets the date or any of these elections, as long as you catch it before the, the date that is six months after the date that you would have filed, you would have had the original return without extension. So essentially for a partnership, that means that I could have fixed this problem through September 15th, you know, but I did. Now fixing can get messy in a partnership because we can have BBA, Bipartisan Budget Act rules, which can mean we might have to go through an administrative adjustment request. Nobody likes those because they're a total mess. You know, we may not be able to just change it and have it work. So that, that's another problem. And it gets even more interesting. If it is a state law issue, if you go the 
partnership, you know, AAR issue is how will the state law affect retreat that change? And there's not total consistency as how the states react to the BBA audit rules for amended returns. So, you know, obviously this would be a situation we wouldn't want to get too deep into. So what happens was they had to request relief from the IRS for each of their tax returns. Now, because the IRS sets the due date for the election, the IRS has the authority to grant relief and they look to regulation 301.9100-2 for such relief, right? The big problem with that is not that it's hard to get. In this case, it's almost certain. I would have no doubt we first started they were going to get this release, this relief, unless they did something really stupid. But the problem is you have to pay for it. And paying for PLRs can get very expensive. If you're paying for 11 of them, well, that probably makes it even more expensive. But we, I digress. That's not really our problem here today. Uh, we still got to pay, though, for pro fees to do it, or somebody's got to eat those fees. And we've got to pay for the ruling request. And frankly, you know, that's, that's expensive to do, right? Now, in order to get relief, generally, the IRS wants to make sure you're not getting the advantage of hindsight. You know, you didn't just wait until the year was done to see what was going to happen or wait until the returns were done, which could be, you know, essentially over eight, let's say eight, or should be up to eight and a half months later than the end of the year, see what the impact was, and then suddenly want this relief. Think, oh, oh, guys, we, we need this relief. So with no hindsight being used, uh, the IRS did grant relief for each ruling due request because it was very clear, as I discussed in the facts on this, that the firm had believed, let's say the, the taxpayer believed that bonus had been opted out of. Uh, they had no reason to believe it hadn't happened. Yes, had they read the return and understood all the rules, which is probably asking way too much of them. But if they had, yes, they could have caught the fact they didn't have a valid election but they reasonably relied on the CPA firm who actually fouled up on what is a legal question, not a question of, you know, what date did they file? It's a pretty straight up legal question involving, you know, in this case, when they had to file this, what needed to be done? Fairly straightforward, okay? Um, they grant it. Now, let's ask a simple question. Because a lot of people, you know, have wondered about this. Why in the world they go for this ruling? Because the likelihood of the IRS actually ever questioning this is pretty low. They'll go ahead normally and take the money and run. So what would cause this problem? Why, why, why don't we just ignore it? Let's take just ignore it the first problem. If you just ignore it, you would have a high risk in the year you sell the asset of getting into the allowed or allowable computation which means that because you could have fully depreciated the first year, uh, that's going to be treated as the assets fully depreciated when you do sell it, even if, you know, right, you know, we turn around and say, well, you know, we, we have it and, you know, we intended it. We've never claimed that depreciation. It doesn't matter. It was depreciation that was allowable. And the fact you didn't take it does not render it a non-issue. So that, that's probably the first issue we look at there. But the other thing is, you know, it was very, very clear that they intended to make this election. It was very clear from their records, correspondence, other issues they did. The problem was that apparently the tax firm in question 
just didn't know. And that's more likely where the problem comes about why we went and applied for this ruling. Uh, yes, we need it to make sure we don't get whipsawed by a, you know, by attack by basically by an examining agent who is, you know, who's going to say, I don't care what you claimed. You you could have fixed it and didn't. So we're going with what's there. And in fact, you didn't claim the proper depreciation. And because of that, you know, you can then start arguing whether you should be allowed to make that change at this point and go through all that stuff. But you're going to be tying up your ruling for quite a while. So, you know, the more likely outcome, I think, as to why this ruling was asked for is somebody was doing due diligence on the firm. It could have been a firm looking to merge with this firm. It could have been a firm looking to acquire this firm. But in any event, I suspect the other firm was not thrilled with taking on this potential. It could be a big judgment, too, because, again, you'd have to know a lot about the situation. But I could certainly see this going south a lot of ways with parties claiming they would never have agreed to this, etc. Problems running in. All of this has to be taken into account has not been by the partnership. And that, that's what renders this a risky uh, operation and why somebody acquiring the firm might say, look, I realize the chances are low that this will come back to bite us, but you know what? We're paying good money for this firm. We're not going to buy their problem. Tell them, go get it fixed, or we can probably find somebody else to buy. We don't need to worry about you. Find somebody else who didn't foul something like this up. So that's likely why we have this request out there. So this has been the Kernfield Tax Developments for the week of July 15th. Kernfield Tax Developments, as always, is brought to you by Kaplan Financial Education. Uh, Kaplan Financial Education, we obviously do CP courses, doing those around, doing things. Uh, I also follow discussions on the websites for the Arizona Society of CPAs, New Jersey Societies, Minnesota Society of CPAs, uh, Illinois Society, uh, we do that background, also Washington, and I do look in on some issues that get posted on Idaho's discussion groups. As always, if you have a more general question, you can email me at zollers at kernfotaxdevelopments.com. Otherwise, please see us next week. We'll take a look and see what other new and wondrous things come up. Congress will be coming back into town, so things may start working on the legislative side. We'll just need to keep a watch on. But in any event, we'll be back here with you next week for more current federal tax developments.